Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. 49 to 3. 49 to 3 was the score last week of the first Georgia football game of this season between then ranked number three Georgia, your defending national champions, thank you very much, and uh, then ranked number 11 Oregon, who had actually upset Ohio State the year before. Uh, Georgia put the college football world on notice. There was no complacency, no plan to take a step back. We saw right out of the gate, man, they're going to be pretty good uh, this year. In fact, heading into this season, if you looked at Georgia's uh, entire season, you would have circled Oregon. So that's the toughest game we're going to play the whole year. And we're going to find out when we play them what we're really like as a team. Um, if we can win that initial game against this really tough opponent, we can beat anybody. Um, and that's different than how the schedules used to be. We used to always start with like a gimme game, a warm-up game, a cupcake game like, you know, Sanford yesterday. <laughs> Um, which really quickly, folks were disappointed. They only scored 33 points. But you do realize that we've scored 33 points in the last two games we played against teams from Alabama. So I just think they were keeping that symmetrical. Um, I don't know, that's my, that's my uh, guess on it. Um, Today is our fall kickoff Sunday. So again, indulge me and allow a football illustration and uh, hang with me just for a minute. Because um, today we are in 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy is our New Testament lesson. This is a letter from Paul uh, to his young protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy serving as uh, the pastor, maybe the temporary pastor in charge, uh, in Ephesus, uh, the same church where the Ephesian letter goes. And in this passage, Paul says that his conversion at the earliest stages of the church as the chief enemy of the church uh, was kind of similar to Georgia starting the season with the toughest opponent we can find. You see, just like those early victories, I know it's a stretch, but they show, hey, Georgia can beat anybody. God's early confrontation and conversion of Paul shows that the gospel's for everyone, even the least likely. No one is uh, too tough. Um, in football world, we refer to those early matchups as statement games. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I think King Jesus made a statement when he confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. He wanted to deliver a clear message right at the beginning, who the gospel was for and is for, and what the gospel and God's church are actually all about. You see, if the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus was for Paul, again, uh, the man who is the enemy of the church, he was going around rounding up Christians, putting them in jail, uh, we think he oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen. He's killing people. That's an enemy of the church. If the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus was for Paul, then it's for anybody and for everybody. If, if King Jesus loved Paul, this enemy of the church, then there is no one outside of his love. If Paul could receive grace and mercy, if his uh, heinous sins could be forgiven, well, then grace and mercy is available to everyone. And our sins, the very worst ones, the ones that people don't know about, 
Well, you know what? Those sins can be forgiven as well. The glorious rescue mission of King Jesus starts, I think, intentionally with the chief enemy of the early church to clarify the gospel from the beginning. But now we're a little bit later. Churches have been planted. The gospel message has gone out. Problems begin to arise. And here in Ephesus, Paul's young protege has been left in charge. And they've lost their clear focus on the gospel. Uh, you read these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, often called the pastoral epistles. And you see that false teachers and false teaching have sprouted up like weeds in their midst. And Paul writes with a shepherd's staff to bring them back into alignment with the gospel, with the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus. And so I want to talk about that this morning. Um, those three letters, the pastoral epistles, you could almost put a caption over them that says, guard the faith and guide the church. This is what Paul is telling these two young men, and it's clear here that the faith is in trouble and the church is in trouble because of the false teachers and false teaching uh, that has arisen. Um, Paul, again, he's left Timothy temporarily in charge. It looks like he might be a little timid. He's young in his leadership. He's a little shy to correct these leaders. And Paul wants to kind of encourage him, urge him, let him know, here's your task as a pastor in the church. Um, and we don't, we don't totally know what kind of uh, wrong teaching had arisen. We get hints as we kind of read between the lines in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Um, certainly there's some mysticism going on. Uh, there's a lot of speculation going on. I actually think a lot of their issue is probably that they took something minor and made it central. Um, sometimes false teaching works like that more than anything else, where we take something that shouldn't be the main point, and we put it into the main point as the primary focus instead of the gospel. Um, and then there's some weird stuff with asceticism. Um, when they're saying, like, hey, uh, certain foods are bad. Maybe marriage is bad. The body is bad. And Paul's like, no, these are God's good creation. Um, what are you all talking about? And so we get some hints about what they might have been teaching. But what I'm struck by is that Paul is more concerned with overcoming what's wrong by teaching what's right than by engaging it point by point. And more importantly, he's going to pull back the curtain on the desires of these teachers. He says, hey, they're interested in vainglory, and ultimately they're interested in financial gain. They're grifters. That's what's going on here. Um, right before our passage, 1 Timothy 1.6 says, certain persons by swerving from these, and these are the central aim of their teaching, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Um, I've always, I'm a little bit tempted to go on Facebook and to start renaming groups as vain discussion. <laughs> um, because you see this idea of these you know, people just kind of uh, self-appointed uh, leaders and teachers, and, and they, they opine on everything um, and as Paul would say, without understanding really what they're saying or the things they're actually talking about, and their assertions are incredibly confident. <laughs> Paul wants to undercut this. He says, no, there's a desire here to be known as a teacher rather than to actually teach God's people. 
These folks are doing this out of false motives, not seeking to serve and build up the body. Um, There's a combination of novelty and ignorance and arrogance rather than teaching uh, to serve God's people. So Paul just wants Timothy to know, hey, these self-serving leaders are toxic and they're dangerous. Um, And you've got to do something about it. You can't just kind of let it uh, play out, as it were. Um, And I think that when we hear that, that seems a little odd. Um, Either we're really excited that Paul is calling out false teachers and false teaching because maybe we've been in churches with false teachers and false teaching. We're like, good, stick it to them. That's exactly what you need to do, Paul. Or maybe we've been in churches that are so obsessed with heresy hunting and finding false teaching and false teachers. Like, man, Paul, chill out. You can't find a heretic under every rock. That's not the way to do constructive, generous theology. We're like, why is this such a problem? Well, I think it's such a problem for Paul because of his view of the church. Paul knows the church has all kinds of issues. Every church has all kinds of issues. If you read these letters, you see issues in all of these churches, right? They have issues of doctrine. They have issues of lifestyle. They have issues of leadership, all kinds of stuff. And yet Paul clings to this vision in the New Testament of the church in glory. The church that was hard won by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church indwelled by God's very Holy Spirit. And so when we come to the pastoral letters, uh, you see some, you know, getting into the weeds of issues in that church, but we also see more broadly, what's God's picture for the church? What's leadership supposed to be like in the church? And how's that interface with the real local issues these pastors are facing? Uh, Timothy, again, in Ephesus. Titus, who's in Crete. Uh, Real people in real churches. It strikes me that the Ephesian church, man, (laughs) I don't know, I'm like, if this Ephesian church is prone and susceptible to false teaching, who is not? I mean, they had already gotten the actual letter to the Ephesians. (laughs) Like, a New Testament letter from Paul tracing the goodness of the gospel and the beauty of the church and how to live as God's people, and it still hasn't taken root and flourished the way you would hope. I mean, in in Ephesians, that earlier letter, Paul said that the church is the dwelling place of the living God. He says, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When Paul thinks of the church, that's what he thinks of. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then later in this book, 1 Timothy 3, he actually connects that with the place that truth should have in that congregation. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. Again, Timothy's kind of in charge temporarily. The manager has gone to take a break, and he's the shift leader. (laughs) It's that kind of a thing. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There should be an intrinsic connection between 
God's church and truth. What is true and wise and good and beautiful in the world. That as the church belongs to God and is indwelt by God, it's a place of truth making known his wisdom. It should be a place where you can come in and investigate truth, not have false teaching and false leaders. Not to see inconsistent teaching and inconsistent lives. You should come in and go, oh, this is where I can actually know and see what it looks like when the living God is at work in a place. That's Paul's vision for the church. And that's why he says that the church must be guarded and guided. It's that precious. Such that falsehood and foolishness have no place because it should be a bulwark and pillar of truth. That's where it is. Now, in just a bit, Paul's going to concede that it's a little, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but the, the person who is most concerned with the health and flourishing and goodness of God's church was the one who tried to stamp it out. He's the least likely person to have said, here's how I want the church to grow and flourish. He tried to get rid of it. He's going to acknowledge that in a little bit. But I would just say, um, it's interesting, the way he talks about these false teachers, he even names some in these letters. You know, I actually think his heart um, was that, one, they need to be removed from their place of leadership. They don't need to be teaching because the truth is not in them. But more than that, I think he holds out hope that the same King Jesus that met him on the road to Damascus could meet them. Um, they're, they're not out of leadership forever. It's not like they're, they're consigned to falseness. He's saying you need to meet the living and true God and turn to him in repentance and faith, just like I did. He's not, he doesn't see himself as better than them. He actually later will say that he is the chief of sinners, the very worst of the worst. And so back to basics. After he kind of lays out that issue with false teaching, we didn't read that in our passage what we have is this very personal testimony from Paul in this personal letter. Um, he's partly establishing his credibility or, or reminding Timothy of his own story and how to approach leadership and ministry. Um, he's reminding Timothy what it looks like when someone has encountered the living God in repentance and faith, something presumably not evident in these false teachers that had sprung up. Verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. In other words, Paul is taking his orders from Jesus. He's deriving his strength and his energy from Jesus. His life is marked with gratitude and I would say astonishment of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. Look at verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, we don't, some churches have name tags every Sunday. We don't have name tags every Sunday. Um, we do in the kids' area for safety, but that's, that's different. Um, can you imagine if you walked in and said, hey, here's your name tag. Cool. Uh, you can call me blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. And we're like, good. I hope he's the guest preacher. <laughs> I mean, that's what Paul's saying. That's how wild this is. And again, I could imagine that in Ephesus, you've got these new teachers, these new leaders, folks are flocking to them, and they're like, who does Paul think he is? Does he think he's better than us? 
Is he just being mean? And Paul's like, no, I'm not better than you. On the contrary, I'm the chief of sinners. I needed God's work more than you could ever think. I needed the Lord to intervene, to rescue. And then he actually kind of holds out. I, this is, I think Paul's being so kind here. Paul holds out. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think he's actually trying to give those false leaders a little bit of a, a safe face. Yeah, hey, we, we don't know what we're doing. We're acting ignorantly. We need to actually be formed and catechized uh, before we're teaching again. Um, he says, I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. In the midst of being a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 15 is the underline it kind of verse. It says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's like, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So interesting that they're having all these speculative discussions they're having all these questions of how do we live and do we do this, do we do that? And Paul says, hey, let's get back to square one. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Let's make sure that we're calibrated to the reality of the gospel that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. That's the compass for Paul. He's focused on the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus. He's been saved by it. Timothy has been saved by it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like Paul and Timothy. Sinners like you and me. I mean, those who seem like they are right on the edge of converting to the Christian faith and those who are so opposed to the gospel, we can never imagine them following Jesus. I often wonder if Stephen ever thought Paul would follow Jesus, <laughs> who oversaw his execution as a martyr. Interesting. Christ Jesus came for all of them and all of us. And again, I think Paul is suggesting that his own conversion came right at the beginning just to make it extra clear. No one is too far or has done too much to be loved, saved, and forgiven by God. Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. If you'll allow me a little bit of a crass stretch. What he's saying is that the earliest convert wasn't a cupcake like Samford. It was this opponent that you could never imagine beating, and if you could conquer that opponent, you could conquer anything. He's saying that's what God did, and he did it for a reason, and he did it with specific timing right at the beginning to display his perfect patience. Bishop N.T. Wright commenting on this says, God has taken the wildest, most violent of blaspheming persecutors and has transformed him into not only a believer. I mean, that would be wild, right? Not only into a believer, but also a trusted apostle and evangelist. Again, this is the guy who wrote half the New Testament. And if God can do that, there's nobody out there, no heart so hard, no anger so bitter, 
that it remains outside the reach of God's patient mercy. And that way, St. Paul is the, in many ways, the paradigm of radical conversion to faith. This early object lesson of God's perfect patience. Um, and as I think about that, and I think I can say this well, um, Paul is a, a paradigm of faith. But I think I was implicitly brought up <laughs> to think that if you wanted to have real faith, then you wanted to actually go out and aspire to be the chief of sinners before then you could be radically saved and come back to the Lord. And if you didn't go do the chief of sinners before you were radically saved, then were you, I mean, how amazing is the grace anyways? I think there are areas of the church where that's implicitly taught. Um, and thanks be to God, those who run the furthest and are the wildest God not only receives home, but like Luke 15 says, God goes out and seeks them and brings them home to himself. And thanks be to God for that. Um, but I think the other person in this book is Timothy. And Timothy's faith is not like Paul's faith. We don't have this huge life of sin and this radical conversion on the road to Damascus. What we have in Timothy, we learn in another letter is this young man whose mother and grandmother taught him the faith. And he was reared in it, and then Paul taught him, and the faith became his own. And that can be a perfect model of saving faith as well. Because the question is not how bad is my sin, but how good is my Savior? It's not where have you been and what have you done, but are you presently trusting in Christ? and what he has done for you and for your salvation. You know, I, I was thinking about this kind of a steady faith, and sometimes actually the person who uh, doesn't run off and go wild, but the person who stays and tries to be really, really good for so long, there's, there's another kind of lostness in that. Um, next week we're going to read Luke 15, the parable of the two lost sons, and we're going to see some of that. Um, but I was thinking this week, um, and indulge me, this is an Anglican church, okay? Um, we got to talk about the queen, right? <laughs> just, just for a moment. Um, queen Elizabeth II, her royal majesty, um, my, I mean, I don't know, the most famous public Christian until her death, uh, well-respected, um, was not private about her faith, but also was... Um, just a model of doing her duty with joy and with dignity and rooted in faith. Um, there's that kind of faith as well. Um, she recently wrote, throughout my life, the message and teachings of Christ have been my guide, and in them I find hope. We said here that Paul's central claim that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners Queen Elizabeth once said, history teaches us we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness, and from our greed. And God sent into the world neither a philosopher nor a general. That's a very interesting phrase. <laughs> She's saying Jesus is not just a teacher. And he's not here to fight and win the wars we think that he should fight and win, but a savior with the power to forgive. And again, the point is not to, to pit any of these kinds of experiences against one another, but to celebrate the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus for anyone and for everyone. 
And it comes to saying, do you know this King Jesus as Savior? Are you trusting in him for salvation? If not, there's an open invitation to come, and he loves you, and he's able to save you and transform you and even use you, just like he did Paul. That's why Paul's there is this perfect lesson of patience early on. I mean, think about what Paul did. After he's transformed, he goes around and he's doing the work of ministry. He's spreading mission. He's creating and planting these churches, these new communities of goodness and beauty centered around the gospel, the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus. He's saying this should be places where truth and wisdom and goodness and beauty are found and people can come find it and see it and see it in the lives of the people that are there. Here in 1 Timothy, he's calling the church in Ephesus back to their first love, to remember the glorious rescue mission of King Jesus. And I think to just, it's an invitation to recalibrate. To the extent that we've gotten off track, to the extent that we've pursued vain discussion or, or vain speculation or, or made minor things primary, Paul would say, no, let's recalibrate. Let's make sure that our starting place, and actually today we're kind of starting the fall, so kind of our starting place for the year. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, whether you feel more like St. Paul or your life of faith has been reared in the church like Timothy or steady like Queen Elizabeth, the point is not what you have or have not done, but what God has done in Christ for all of us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then once we've recalibrated to that, once we've come back on track to that main thing, either remembering our first love or even finding faith maybe for the first time, if we're rightly recalibrated to that foundational truth, there's only one thing we can do. We respond in praise. That's what Paul does. He's remembering the gospel. He's remembering God's work in his own life. And he just erupts in gratitude and praise. This exclamation point at the end of our passage. And so I'll close with it this morning. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.